Here we are, back again, finally. Yes, it's Friday, it's the 2nd of February, and here is the first episode of the Sustainable Futures Report for 2018. I'm Anthony Day. Welcome to my podcast, welcome to my patrons, and a special welcome to Catherine Weekman of Rethink Solutions, my latest patron. Thanks for your support, Catherine. As promised, this episode will be my manifesto for the coming year. I've been away and we've had a bit of a family crisis since I got back, largely now resolved, hence the delay in getting back into the routine. While I've been away, I've been reading. I've read Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, followed by her latest No Is Not Enough. I've read George Monbiot's Out of the Wreckage, and I picked up Michael Wolfe's Fire and Fury to read on the plane. Plenty of food for thought. First, let's look at some of the news stories which have come up since I last spoke to you. Last week, I was asked to do an interview for Talk Radio. They wanted to know about the new report which indicated that the effect of man-made climate change would not be as bad as expected. I tracked it down to a report in the journal Nature by a team from Exeter University. What they had actually said was that they thought that apocalyptic climate change, which might occur as a result of six degrees of warming, had a less than 1% chance of actually happening. In fact, anything over four and a half degrees was extremely unlikely. They concluded that there was a 66% chance of warming falling in the range of 2.2 to 3.4 degrees, with the most likely outcome of 2.8 degrees. While they said that the ultimate worst-case scenario was extremely unlikely, they reminded us that the Paris Agreement target was 2 degrees, and anything above 1.5 degrees was considered dangerous. So their work certainly didn't mean that we could slow down our efforts to reduce carbon emissions. When we got to the interview, which was with Eamon Holmes on his Drive Time show, he wanted to talk about the difference between apocalyptic and dangerous climate change, and then moved on to ask me about the drought in Cape Town, South Africa. As it happened, I hadn't heard about the drought at that stage, so couldn't offer any detailed insights beyond suggesting that they should use solar power to run desalination plants, tell everyone to use as little water as possible, and ultimately distribute water only from tankers or standpipes in the street. I've since done my research, and the situation in Cape Town looks pretty desperate. Apparently, they have had two years of drought, and the reservoirs are down to less than 30% of capacity. The city authorities first said that the taps would run dry on the 21st of April, but they are now saying that this will happen on the 12th of April. They have lowered water pressure and cut off water altogether at certain times. People have been told to use not more than 87 litres of water per day, shortly to be reduced to 50 litres. They have been asked to spend not more than two minutes in the shower. Not many people are taking any notice. Desalination plants are under construction. I'm told they'll take two months to complete, but that sounds extremely quick to me. People are stockpiling fresh water. Warehouses full of plastic water carriers are selling out daily. They're preparing for a black market in water as things get worse. 
It'll be interesting to see if the authorities can deliver the remaining water fairly across all areas of the city and avoid unrest and violence. It's currently high summer in Cape Town and the average rainfall in February is 20 millimetres or less than an inch, climbing to 100 millimetres in July. That gives an annual total of 780 millimetres or 31 inches. Compare that with Sydney, Australia, another coastal city on the same latitude as Cape Town. There they expect an average of 126 millimetres in February, compared with 20, and a peak of 140 in June, but the average total for the year is 1300 millimetres, that's 51 inches, as opposed to Cape Town's 31 inches. It's nearly twice as much. Strangely, Manchester in the UK, which is famous for rain, only gets 34 inches, while London gets just 22 inches, which is less than Cape Town gets. Maybe it's the fact that temperatures are so much lower and evaporation is less that makes droughts less frequent and less severe in the UK. That's the vagaries of climate. But we're now witnessing the vagaries of climate change. Cape Town is the first major city in the world to face catastrophic drought. The fear is that it will not be the last. And meanwhile, Paris, in France, faces floods. Links on the blog, as always. Blue Planet 2, David Attenborough's latest documentary, was the most watched programme of 2017 in the UK. In particular, the final episode, which showed how discarded plastic was causing havoc to marine life, has caught the public imagination. There are calls for an end to plastic packaging, or even to ban the sale of water in plastic bottles. The UK bottled water market, including glass, is worth £2.4 billion. A new initiative was announced last week by the Water Council, a network of shops of all types where you can refill your water bottle free of charge. Actually, it's not new at all. Regular listeners to the Sustainable Futures report will remember that I reported on this in July. There's an app which shows where your nearest refill point can be found. Just search for Refill in the App Store. I understand that Starbucks, Costa and Premier Inns have agreed to be part of the network, although their locations don't yet appear on the app. They should have a sticker in their windows, though. Some consumers have written to the media to say how they are unwrapping their purchases at the supermarket and leaving the plastic behind for the supermarket to deal with. Yes, something must be done, but like with most sustainability issues, the solution isn't that simple. Plastic packaging is attractive to manufacturers and distributors because it's cheap, it is light, it can be transparent, it is waterproof, hygienic, and reduces waste by protecting the product from damage in transit. It's possible to print on plastic, so there's no need for an additional paper label to show the product description or instructions for use. Some people claim that paper should be used instead, but it's not as versatile as plastic. It's not transparent. It collapses when wet and can be less hygienic. And while paper can be recycled, both the production and the recycling processes involve large amounts of water and harsh chemicals. At least much more paper than plastic is recycled. In the UK, plastic recycling varies from town to town and much plastic that could be recycled goes to landfill or incineration.
We've recently seen the publication of the DEFRA 25-year plan, which has been promised for at least the last two years. That's the UK's Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. It's a very wide-ranging document with lots of good ideas for clean air, clean water, protecting plants and wildlife, dealing with climate change and reducing pollution and waste. There's a plan to plant a new northern forest across the width of England. We prefer an upgraded railway, but that's another story. Yet another story is the high-speed rail link HS2, which will apparently destroy some 30 ancient woodlands along its route. But that's a story for another day. Commentators were quick to point out that no legislation to make all the good things in the DEFRA plan happen was announced. Launching the report, the Prime Minister said the government was committed to working to a target of eliminating avoidable plastic waste by the end of 2042. Avoidable is a bit of a weasel word, and she won't be Prime Minister in 2042. She said that the 5p surcharge for plastic bags would be extended to all shops, not just the large ones, and the government would work with supermarkets to introduce a plastic-free aisle. Frozen food supermarket Iceland said it would eliminate plastic packaging from its own brand product range by 2023. The public is most aware of the plastic which litters the beaches and the ropes and nets and bottles which ensnare the fish and the turtles and the dolphins and the seals and the plastic drinking straws which impale them. Plastic is an unseen killer as well. It can exist as microparticles from detergents and cosmetics or it can break down into microparticles from larger plastic fragments. These particles are absorbed by fish and sea creatures, displacing their food and poisoning them. Particles can float on the surface of the sea, absorbing other pollutants, and then they can sink down into the ocean, carrying poisons to levels where they never normally penetrate. Even if we stop plastic pollution now, as we must, this pollution will remain for decades to come. One source of pollution that we hardly ever think about is tyres. Tyres wear over time, and it's estimated that some 600,000 tonnes of tyre dust are shed by motor vehicles in the US alone. That dust is washed into the gutters, into streams, and eventually into the oceans. What's the solution? Well, there are other materials that could be used, but they are, unsurprisingly, more expensive. And a tyre is a highly complex product. It needs to provide grip for braking and steering in all weathers. Its design will directly affect fuel consumption, and its design will also affect noise levels. In these days of ultra-quiet engines, most vehicle noise comes from the tyres. It's a tall order for a material to meet all these requirements, be affordable, and be environmentally friendly as well. Another difficult problem, but one we must solve. Of course, cars in general are a major source of CO2 and other pollution. However, Volkswagen have attempted to rebuild their reputation by carrying out tests which involved exposing monkeys in sealed cages to diesel fumes. BMW and Daimler were involved as well. That went down well in the press. But don't worry about cars. An academic paper now claims that microwave ovens could be just as bad. The study carried out at Manchester University used Life Cycle Assessment, LCA, to estimate the impacts of microwaves taking into account their manufacture, use and end-of-life waste management. Altogether, 
the research team investigated 12 different environmental factors, including climate change, depletion of natural resources and ecological toxicity. They found, for example, that the microwaves used across the EU emit 7.7 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent per year. This is, they say, equivalent to the annual emission of 6.8 million cars. This will be linked partly to the electricity used by the ovens and partly to the energy consumed in the manufacturing and distribution process. Another important factor was that the microwave ovens are frequently discarded long before the end of their useful lives. Consumers may just want a new one to match a new kitchen or one with more functions. Researchers are now planning to extend their work to examine other white goods like fridges and washing machines. But there's more! Apparently sandwiches are a serious source of pollution. Yes, it's those people at Manchester University again. Professor Adisa Azapajic from the University's School of Chemical Engineering and Analytical Sciences said consuming 11.5 billion sandwiches annually in the UK generates on average 9.5 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent, equivalent to the annual use of 8.6 million cars. Writing in the journal Sustainable Production and Consumption, the team said the estimated impact from ready-made sandwiches ranges from 739 grams of CO2 equivalent for egg and cress to 1,441 grams of CO2 equivalent for the bacon, sausage and egg option. Ready-made, all-day breakfast sandwiches are therefore the worst offenders. Sandwiches loaded with eggs, bacon and sausages have the highest carbon footprint of the meal deal world, generating 1,441 grams of CO2 equivalent. That's the same amount of pollution that would be produced by driving a small car for 12 miles. And somebody's just discovered that there's plastic in tea bags. The trouble with these scary headlines is that they just make people want to switch off. Should I stop driving? Stop making my healthy porridge in the microwave? Stop eating shop-bought sandwiches? Stop drinking tea? It's all too hard. It's more than tempting for the average consumer to say, let's just assume that the scientists have got it wrong and carry on as normal. After all, my one sandwich can't make a difference, can it? I don't drive an awful lot. And look at the Australians. I was there last month. They put plastic straws in every drink. Their supermarkets put your shopping in plastic bags without a thought or a surcharge. And with petrol at the equivalent of 85p per litre, they all drive really big cars. Having said that, I did visit an open-air food market in Fremantle, which had the stated objective of avoiding all plastic. My meal came on a cardboard tray with wooden cutlery and my coffee in a recyclable cup. Have a look at Biopack, that's B-I-O-P-A-K, dot com dot A-U. Maybe the responsible approach is to start from the opposite direction. Instead of cutting out cars, microwaves, tea bags, and sandwiches, analyse your carbon footprint. How is your personal carbon footprint built up? How can you modify your lifestyle to reduce it? Of course, there are multiple ways of measuring carbon footprints. Isn't it time for an international standard? Should you consider carbon offsets? Patron Catherine Wheatman draws my attention to cool effect carbon credits. There's a link on the blog. On that page, there's a number of articles as well, including a justification for carbon offsets. Personally, I'm not convinced. What do you think?
Catherine has sent me a lot more links for carbon footprinting. I'll report on them in a future episode. I heard from Jeremy Leggett last week. He says, in a report entitled Climate Change and the Insurance Industry, Lloyds of London was advised as follows in February 1993, quote, It would behove the industry to look very closely at where all capital is invested. Fossil fuel-related operations should be eschewed, and solar energy and energy efficiency projects favoured, unquote. I remember that well says Jeremy. I wrote the report and presented it at Lloyd's before a large audience of worried-looking reinsurers. That was 1993. On the 21st of January 2018, Lloyd's finally decided to divest from coal, the most dangerous fossil fuel in terms of climate change. An issue arises here, says Jeremy, by delaying a quarter of a century enacting what is surely such an obvious self-protection measure, How much damage has Lloyd's done to investors who have placed their trust in them in the interim when it comes to weather-related disasters? A good question. Links to those stories on the blog. If you're interested in solar energy, there's a TED Talk you should see. Search for Amar Inamdar, that's A-M-A-R, I-N-A-M-D-A-R, that's the name of the speaker, or find the full link on the blog at sustainablefutures.com. Dot report. I promise you my manifesto for 2018. As I said to start with, I've read a number of important books over the last few weeks and they've influenced my thinking. No time to review them in detail here. I'll aim to do that next time. The overall message is that climate change is increasingly urgent and therefore it is urgent that we find ways of influencing our governments, our leaders and global corporations. I make no apology. If future episodes of the Sustainable Futures Report have a more overt political tone. I'm just about to start researching for a PhD at Leeds Beckett University. It'll take me four or five years. The actual topic of the thesis will be refined over the initial six months or so, but my objective is to examine why the denialists, with their fantasies, get much more attention from governments and policymakers and the public than do scientists with their peer-reviewed research. I hope I shall be able to find a way of doing something about that, and I hope I shall be able to do it before it's too late. The other thing which is taking much of my time at the moment is the Smart Sustainable Cities Convention, which will take place in Leeds, UK, on the 21st of March 2019. I'm the director, so my initial task is to recruit sponsors, going well so far, and then to invite speakers and facilitators. Then I need to attract the delegates. I shall be marketing the event across the whole of Europe. Don't worry, we won't be leaving the EU until the week after the convention. The intention is that this event will be held annually in different cities across Europe, but for the moment I'm concentrating on this first event in Leeds. You can find more information on the website, which is at sscc nine. With all these things going on, I'm having to take hard decisions about the Sustainable Futures Report. Initially, at least, I'll be reducing the frequency to one episode per month. So the next edition will be on Friday the 2nd of March. 
In between the monthly episodes, I may have items from other speakers. So if you have a message to share, please send me a 100-word summary of what you'd like to talk about, and we'll discuss it. If we agree, you can then either send me an audio file that I can publish, or a script which I can read and record. Give it some thought. My aim is to please my listeners. After all, if I don't, everyone will stop listening. And this is where I stop this episode. Thank you for listening, and if you are, thank you for being a patron. And if you're not, you can you can join this exclusive band by going to patreon.com slash sfr. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr. And signing up to contribute anything from $1 a month towards my expenses in publishing and hosting the Sustainable Futures Report, like Catherine and all the others did. Sorry it's not in pounds sterling, but it's an American site. That's it. I'm Anthony Day. I'll be back on the 2nd of March, maybe before, but have a great February. Bye for now. Thank you.